Imagine a conscious contact with God so strong that no matter what you are doing or not doing, that no matter what your kids are up to or not up to, and that whether you've got the person of your dreams or they're just not cooperating, that you are happy, content, and at peace. A space where everyone else's thoughts, attitudes, and actions are beautiful and exactly as they are supposed to be. Well, this is the space where I like to play. My name is Misha Z, and this is today's Bitch Slap. Join me as I shed light on the thoughts, actions, and attitudes that are causing you pain, and we train our minds to go to the capital S inner self, the joy that is waiting for us, the God within. I am so excited right now uh, to have Lynn McTaggart on the Bitch Slap, the Accelerated Path to Peace podcast. And um, really quick, Lynn, here's your introduction. Lynn is a metaphysical rock star, the Madonna of the quantum world, the Malcolm Gladwell of the new science, and even called the Dali Mama. Welcome, <laughs> Lynn McTaggart. Thank you. Thank you very much. That one's my favorite. And it was given to me by a guy called Tom Shadiak, who did the movie I Am. Yeah. He introduced me once as that, and I loved it. I thought it was wonderful and not deserved, but thank you. But, but it's good great fun. to be with you, but thank fun. You. Yeah, good fun nonetheless. Um, and then just really quick, you are an award-winning journalist. You've got seven books out there um, The the with the international bestsellers, worldwide international bestsellers, The Power of Eight, The Field, The Intention Experiment, and The Bond, all considered seminal books of the new science and now translated into some 30 languages. Um, and then you like to focus on and talk about and teach, I'm assuming, intention, correct? I do. Yes. Fantastic. And before we get to that, uh, I've caught you in Great Britain. Yes. That's where I live. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no accent. So either you hide it very well or you're a expat to uh, Great Britain. Is there? I am a New Jersey girl, Misha, who came over here 30 something years ago to spend three months researching a book. And I just never left. So put down roots here. I'm married to a Brit. I've got two grown daughters who are Anglo-American, and so life is here. I've been here more than home. And so what year did you move there, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, 1983. 1983. And you were 1983, yeah. Wow. And then, so you're researching a book, yes? And what, what was the book you were researching at the time? Well, it was nothing to do with science and spirituality, where I ended up focusing on. It was a biography of... One of the Kennedy sisters, Kathleen Kennedy, who had married a British lord and had been really the rebel of the family. So she lived over here in her short life. All of her friends were over here. So I had to come over here to speak to a whole layer of the British aristocracy. Um, and this was back in, well, I started it in 1980. Okay. And, then, um, and I just walked off the plane and I said, I love it here. And I more or less never left. I mean, my heart is still, I'm still a rabid American. 
Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'm very involved in America and my audience is, you know, the majority are Americans, although they come from all over the world. Um, but uh, I live here. So I, I live in London. I love it. I, I, I knew there was something interesting there. So in 1980 to 1983, you're researching uh, one of the Kennedy sisters, it brings you to the aristocracy of England. And are you, you love England, but are you enjoying the research of the book at this point or what's, what's, oh, what's yeah. your mindset? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it was fascinating to me because it was a real window, as somebody wrote about the book, it, it was a real window into the Kennedys because this was the one member of the family, the one child of the nine who didn't march down the same road. Mm. You know, she defied her parents, which was incredible. None of the boys did and married a Protestant, which was shocking back then in the you know, this was during the war in the 1940s, yeah. and uh, she married basically one of the highest level aristocrats in, in the UK, who was Protestant, and he got killed in World War II, and then she went out again and intended to marry a married lord. So this was even more scandalous for Catholic Rose and, you know, and um, the whole family. And Joe Kennedy was loved that daughter, probably most of all. But, you know, even he was concerned because it was going to affect his his children's political future. So she ended up marrying, uh, dying in a plane crash on her way to try to get Joe's blessing on marrying this married guy, married Protestant. So it was this amazing, dramatic story that was... Uh, I was able to tell the story of that generation, which was kind of the golden generation before the war that lost everything. Yeah. And yeah. also have this little peek hole into the family life of the Kennedys. So it was a fascinating project, um, but I never expected it was going to land me here. And it certainly was a million miles away from the work that I have, I'm now known for. Yeah. Um, uh, is, can you, uh, there's a little bit of feedback on your end. Are you hearing it? I'm not. I'm not. Okay. I think there we go. It's good. We're good. Okay. Um, good. Yeah. Um, so I can edit that out or not. Who knows? It's podcast land. That's it. <laughs> okay. So, so you're researching this book, obviously cool, rich history, which I love. And, um, and you now, there's, we got some quantum physics going on in to do fast forward. Um, there's intention, there's science behind all this stuff. What happens between, so what are, are you, are you like a scientist or what's going on? Like fill in the no. blanks for me. <laughs> Misha, I'm very far from a scientist. I'm a journalist and I started out life as an investigative reporter. So my first book was an investigation and an expose of lawyers around the world who were doing baby selling, who were essentially selling babies for adoption. And I broke a number of um, international baby selling rings. Now this was what they call gray market adoption. There weren't laws against this, but it was just morally wrong what yeah. they were doing. Yeah. And they were exploiting children and parents who couldn't have children. 
so that's where I started. I, you know, in my early 20s, I had I was hooked up with hidden tape recorders um, back when there were tape recorders and all this kind of undercover stuff. So that was my background. And the Kennedy book came about because my publishers thought there was a hidden story here and they thought I was a really good investigative reporter. And so they they basically set me on the on the story and of the Kennedys. And uh, it was a, a, a wonderful story, a sad story. Mm. So I moved over here, I got married, I got ill, and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And so after going to both conventional and alternative doctors, I then decided, well, if I'm gonna get better, I'm going to have to research what I think I have. And then also researched the kind of doctor I think would cure me. And so I did, I went to a doctor who was the, uh, a, a real pioneer in what was then integrative medicine and nutritional medicine. And he was so amazing. And it turned out I had a faulty microbiome. It's, it's something that's really common these days. Everybody knows about it, but they didn't back then, which was the 1980s. And so uh, he got me better and we were both fascinated by it. And I had my, I met my husband over here, who's also a journalist. We were married by that time. And, and we both were so fascinated by this process and thought, wow, if you could control your own health and you could work with doctors like this and get the real story about medicine, then that would be really great for people. So we, started a newsletter called What Doctors Don't Tell You. It's now an international magazine. It's in 15 languages around the globe. And we report on what works and what doesn't work in conventional and alternative medicine. And we look at the medical literature. And so way back in the 1990s, I'm doing this and I'm coming across study after study of spiritual healing, showing this stuff works. So I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, if you could take a thought and send it to someone else and make them better, well, that undermines everything we think about how the world works. So I wanted to investigate how that works. And I assumed if I talked to some cutting edge physicists who are doing consciousness research, they'll tell me how it all works. I'll write it up and that's it. And I'll publish the book. Yeah. Well, that, that wasn't what it was. What happened was I talked to these scientists and I, um, I realized that they were on the brink of a completely new view of the world, a completely new science. Each of them had discovered a little piece of a puzzle that compounded into a completely new view of the world, a new understanding of who we are as human beings and our capacities. So that became my book, The Field. And I also realized that these scientists, they speak in math, they speak in a code, and they can't really translate that into normal English. They also like to just talk about their own experimental little patch. They don't like to speculate on how this comes together. So yeah, yeah. that job got left to me. So I really had to tutor and be tutored in quantum physics. I had to be tutored in this new science and, and learn this new science. I was well acquainted with reading scientific literature because yeah. of my work, um, my other work with what docs. But so I, I put that together and that was my book, The Field. 
Um, but there was a lot of leftover business, which was a number of studies. These amazing scientists, prestigious scientists, all from prestigious universities, had come across showing that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. So I wondered, okay, how far can we take this? This is the investigative reporter in me. Yeah. I said, you know, are we talking about just a tiny little effect like shifting a quantum particle? Or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? And also I was fascinated by the idea of what happens if you put lots of people together and have them send the same thought at the same time, does that magnify the effect? And so my next book was The Intention Experiment, which was both a book about the science, all the science of intention, and there's loads of it, but also an invitation to take part in ongoing experiments. Because I thought, well, I know a lot of scientists who are doing this work now, and I also have loads of readers because the field was in 30 languages by then. So I thought, well, if I just put them both together, I'll have the biggest laboratory in the world. And so that's what I did. And that has been the intention experiment ever since 2007. We've run 40 experiments now. And the, the last one we just ran for 9-11, the 20th anniversary. So I don't have the outcome of that yet, but yeah. most of the time we are running them with scientists and they're measuring data and looking at before and afterward, et cetera. And of the 39 where we have evidence, 35 have shown measurable, significant, mostly, you know, mostly significant effects. That's a better track record than most drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I. I read this book. Um, I have a few questions for you, but I read this book about, um, it was called, um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember, but I was looking through your stuff and, and I saw that 35 of your uh, studies had significant uh, statistical, how did you say that? <laughs> significant. Uh, it was positive, um, positive, measurable, mostly significant effects, basically. And significance in science means there's such a big change that it's a significant change. And it's, yeah. it's considered, you know, yeah, we yes. really had yes. an effect. Yeah. There's, I think the book is called Death Grip, but it's about a climber, a rock climber, you know, uh, and uh, he, from a very young age, gets, parents put him on benzodiazepines, right? So he has this brutal benzodiazepine addiction for a good chunk of his life. And it's a really cool book because it just talks about his process of trying to get off of the meds and all this. But he, he also has a lot of data in there. Um, and basically the data was most of the, and I wish I had the book in front of me. It's a great book. Um, most of the the um, studies for you know the benzos and all this sort of stuff there's no difference between the, it's basically all statistically insignificant, right? Like there's no oh, difference gosh. between the placebos and the, and the, um, the word is escaping me, but they're still the pumping. active agent. The yeah, active yeah, agent. yeah. And yeah. And they're still pumping the stuff out there. So I was like, it was very eye opening, but not necessarily. Oh, yeah. The, well, yeah. here's another little stat for you that might blow your mind. There was some studies like 25 years of them 
at Princeton University in the, in the School of Engineering, the then Dean of Engineering, Robert John, set up a program to test whether or not human beings and the mental intention could affect machines. So he set up these random processes. Remember, he was an engineer on computers um, doing alternating images. Let's say they had cowboys and Indians. Okay. So they would have a random process. It would be 50% cowboys pretty much and 50% Indians. And that's what happens with random stuff like this. Yeah. So he would mm -hmm. sit somebody in front of the computer and say, well, will it to show more of one thing than the other? Let's have more Indians than cowboys. So they did hundreds and thousands of these studies and they showed a small but significant increase toward the focused intention. So say if there were more Indians and cowboys, there'd be more Indians and cowboys than there was randomly. So when they compared this to something like aspirin, which is considered the most, one of the most successful drugs out there because it has this long history, the effect of sending intention to this equipment was 10 times an effect size, that's a rate of change, than it was with aspirin, than it is with aspirin. So there's a mind-blowing stat for you. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that. Um, that's amazing. Um, so quick question. When you were doing the investigative reporting and writing books and you're in the Kennedy, writing the Kennedy book, are you having financial success at this point? Relatively so. I mean, not, not amazingly so, but, you know, writers have an average income, uh, you know, standard writers have about $3,000 a year. So I was doing considerably better than that. And oh. my book, the Baby Brokers um, got made into a television movie way back then, starring Lynn Carter. So I had a lot of decent luck. But, you know, like a lot of freelancers, you know, um, sometimes you have to live by your wits. Yeah. Well, I was just interested. I, it was an, it, I think it's an interesting uh, bit of information. I, it sounds like, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess... It's um, you were having success on one track. You continued with what you're doing, but maybe just bent your. Let me let me put this another way. Um, you know, finances haven't always been easy. Way back then, as I said, I was living by my, my wits. I always had, was able to pay my rent, um, and sometimes I was a ghost writer. I I think I ghost wrote a. Um, a needlepoint column for the newspapers, a syndicated column, and had to write fun little jingles like, you know, hey, make this duvet and now you can, you know, shake and bake, shake and make your bed, you know, just stuff like that. I had to do all kinds of goofy stuff like that to, to pay the bills sometimes. But what was really important to me was um, I was uh, managing editor of a newspaper syndicate. And I got the job when I was 23, I was really young mm -hmm. and I had a big important job. And um, I you know, was in charge of all the editorial for, um, for syndicated columns coming out of this, this news, news syndicate. It was the Chicago Tribune, New York News Syndicate. But I really wanted to write more than I wanted to be an editor. And so I followed my dream and I left the job after three years when I got a book contract. So I just jumped off the diving board into the deep end. And I've never looked back and I've actually only worked for someone else for six years of my life. I took a job for a few years in the UK 
as an editor and then jumped off that diving board again to do what doctors don't tell you. So I've always tried to follow my own intention of work and to try to do the work that I love and to trust the process. And good stuff happened. Not that it wasn't sometimes a struggle. Sure. You know, I can remember plenty of times where it was, you know, it was tough when we were starting out what doctors don't tell you. And we had a small child then we had a, a newborn. So there were a lot of times that were a little interesting, but um, something always happened. You know, angels watched over us, I think. And we just trusted in our own, you know, being able to live by our wits and our own ability. And that was a really important thing looking back now. Yeah. Let, let me ask you. So are at this time, are you conscious of, I mean, are you like, you learned that habit from your parents or are you, are you, were you a churchgoer or, or what, what you're like, this is where my heart's pulling me. I find that it's a, for a lot of people, it's very hard. They're like, well, I'm on this success track. The money's good. If I just do ABC and, and their heart's like, no, go here. No, I can't. But it seems like for you, you, you're taking these leaps. We're, um, I think I always wanted to be a writer and that was much more important to me than anything else other than my family. And so even more important than money. So I think I just trusted um, that I'd get money some way and yeah. that I'd be able to do something. And that happened. I remember once my husband and I, you know, when we first started What Doctors, we didn't have any money. So we came up with a book idea and then we got an advance for it. They, they liked it. We got an advance for it. And then we heard about a year later that um, someone else was writing a book on the same subject. It was uh, it was a biography. So those kinds of things happened, but it was very weird that both of us were going to do it at the same time. And so the publisher said, well, you know what, we're going to cancel since you didn't cancel. You can keep that initial payment. So that was just an example of great stroke of luck yeah, at the yeah. point where we were really scrambling to pay some bills. Um, I think what it was, was we're both, I think we're just, uh, we love what we do yeah. and we follow that through thick or thin. And when there was the thin times, we would have to live by our wits and figure out something else to do. Yeah. And but I think the work doing the work that we loved was was paramount. And yeah. of course, you know, being together. Yeah. So yeah. between the two of us, I guess we've, you know, <laughs> we were able to do that. And and we just believed. We just believed. I think that was a really important element to Misha. Thank you for that. And then quick, the, was there any deep hidden story in the Kennedy in the Kennedy thing? You're like, there's a story there. Like there's something juicy. Did Spoiler. Did you find it or? <laughs> well, yeah. The fact that she had to go up against her parents and we can't appreciate how incredibly brave it was to marry a Protestant. You know, her father was the ambassador to the court of St. James and this totally prominent, the prominent, premier Catholic family back in the 1940s. And so for her to go against this. And I mean, the power structure too, right? Joe Kennedy, like the Kennedys, the oil, all this stuff, right? 
Like, am I? Oh yeah. I mean, they were wealthy, they were powerful, and he had great, great ambition for his. You know, one of his sons was going to be president, yeah. and so here <clears throat> she is, just saying, "No, I'm going to go back to England. I'm going to be there." And she had met someone when she had met this whole la- layer of the aristocracy back when her uh, her. Uh, father was the ambassador to the court of St. James. And she, you know, she went back there to be with her friends. These were the people she was with. She, she, they had debutante bowls back then. So she came out as a debutante. And so these were all this whole layer of this generation in Britain (laughs) were her dear friends. And so she wanted to go back there. So she defied her parents by going back there and marrying the premier Protestant aristocrat. Yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. it was that it was the, the the family covered up that she was involved with a married lover. She was flying down for what the Brits call a dirty weekend. <laughs> and, uh, in her last trip, you know, they were flying down to to the south of France. And when her plane didn't make it, she had a plane crash. So there were and the family completely covered up her relationship, covered up everything. She was just a blank page in the Kennedy biography, basically. Mm. And I, they gave it to me, the, my publishers, because they thought I could find out what had happened to her. So that was it. But as I say, that was early on in my work. And yeah. my work has taken a very, very different turn yes. with all my I- spirituality. Yes, I, and I'm sorry to to dwell to go dwell on that stuff. It's just, it's interesting to me. I and I I, I get a sense. Tena- you're obviously tenacious if you're wearing wires, things like that. That um, that uh, you were <laughs> you were a rascal back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was doing my work, and you know, I would I would actually say that you know, journalists are supposed to hold the establishment to account. We're not seeing that anymore. We're certainly not seeing that with COVID. The journalists have become a mouthpiece for the establishment. But back when, you know, when I was growing up, we had heroes like Woodward and Bernstein. And we saw, well, wow, they took down a corrupt presidency. And so for my generation of journalists, we feel essentially a moral obligation to hold people in authority to account and to unearth things that are, you know, are, we have only one person to answer to, and that's the public, one, one body of people to answer to. And so for me, investigating people who are taking $25,000 cash under the table to sell them a baby is worth investigating. And, you know, and, bringing that out in, in, in the light now. And it's interesting. I get letters every so often from children who were the product of that, who were sold and it wasn't a happy adoption. Mm -hmm. They were desperate to find their biological parents and to find out some closure for, for this weird experience they had. And so they're a demonstration of why, you know, this wasn't a good idea. Yeah. And so yeah. that's that's the feeling I have. Now, when you bring this to science and spirituality, 
what it just means is that I have this, first of all, a sense of skepticism that it it permeates everything I do because that's our training. And when you put that into spirituality, what it means is I wanted to, I wanted to prove magic. And that's why I did the intention experiment because I started seeing magical things around me. I started understanding there's a completely new science here. There's a completely new story about human beings. We have far more capacity than we've been told. And so I wanted to investigate that. And that's been really the work over the last four years. And yes, and the work that I've done with large and small intention groups demonstrates there are miracles I see all the time, all the time with small groups, sending intention to some member of the group with a health challenge. And I had a woman a month or two ago, I did a, a talk to a group in Sedona and I was just on Zoom. So I'm doing my talk. I put them in a small group because that's what I've been doing. I call them power of eight groups and had them, all the members of the group get into groups Uh, all the members of this audience get into groups, send intention to some member of the group with a health challenge. At the end, we've got a film of it. A woman who had MS and was confined to a wheelchair, got out of her wheelchair and pushed it away. And that's happened. That's the second wheelchair, get out of the wheelchair story. I can tell you about that has happened in the last couple of years, but there are thousands of other healing stories. And so this is the thing that really fascinates me now is decoding why this happens and how to do it. So the last four years has been this power of eight. You have that book out, The Power of Eight. Is that when you say the last four Um, years? No, since 2008. It took me 10 years to get the courage to write the book. Um, I, um, I started doing this when I did the intention experiment back in 2007. You know, we were getting some really good results. We were getting... I mean, for instance, one experiment we did with St. Louis, Missouri, which is officially the most violent place in America. We did an intention (laughs) to lower violence in this, in the most violent neighborhood in St. Louis. Yeah. And it turned out when we studied all the police data and we worked with a professor of statistics from the University of California who did all of the analysis, she found that compared to the three years prior, Right after our experiment and for six months afterward, there was a 43% drop in violence compared to all the rest of St. Louis, which had violence continue to go up. So we had this big experience and we've had them in all of these big experiments. So back in 2008, I said to myself, well, what would happen if I tried to scale this down to a workshop? So I was running early workshops, didn't really know what I was doing and thought, well, I'll just put them into groups and have them send healing to a member of the group with a health challenge. And my husband's a great headline writer. And he said, I love it. I said, I'll put them in groups of eight or something. And he said, I love it, the power of eight. So that's what we did. We put them in groups of eight, not expecting much to happen besides feeling like they're getting a back rub or something like that. And that isn't what happened. What happened was, we were getting, you know, we had in that first group, we had a woman who had depression and she came in the next day of the workshop saying, I feel really normal. I feel great today. Someone else with terrible stomach 
issues IBS and her stomach was normal. Somebody else with terrible arthritis was walking normally. Somebody else with cataracts said she was 80% better. And so that was the very first group. And we're saying to ourselves, what? Um, what is going on? And we assumed it was a placebo effect, you know, that there was just mental effect of, uh, until it started happening over and over again. I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I've seen this now thousands of times. People with genetic problems, a woman who had something wrong with her liver, a genetic problem with her, her liver enzymes, one group intention, she's completely fine. So somebody else due to have surgery on her knee, she does one intention in a group, 10 minutes, and she does a deep squat afterward. And we've had thousands like this, stage four cancers reversing, et cetera. So you can imagine the big skeptic, me, saying, what is going on? So that's why it took me 10 years to write that book because I wanted to really understand what it was. And I also wanted to understand what enables you to do it well. And that's what I teach now is how to do it. Um, and what are the techniques? What is, you know, because a lot of people watching, you know, the popular movies on the subject, the secret and things like that, just think, well, I believe and I receive, you know, and it's, what I have found is it's, it's a little more complicated than that. We all have the capacity. Everybody has the human capacity to do intention and to essentially create our world, to heal ourselves. Um, but you need to know certain things about how to do it. Fantastic. So, so let tell me, like, like let's, because let, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. So let's say we've got some, some, some listeners right now that are, are skeptical, but open-minded. And they're like, I'll try some intention stuff that Lynn's talking about. Um, so you've got a strategy for us. So give us the overarching and, and then maybe some, uh, a few of uh, the tactics for uh, okay. a new, a new, a new entrant in Toronto. Okay. Entrant. Well, it's hard for me to teach it in 10 minutes. I sure. mean, these are, 20 hour courses of mine, you know, but I'll, I'm going to give you one tip that, that almost nobody talks about who is, you know, trying to teach the power of thought, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the power of being specific. Mm -hmm. You know, most people think, oh, I'll send out a thought in the morning. I'll say, you know, I want to be rich and I want everybody, or I want to win the lottery, let's say. And the problem is they're not really telling the universe exactly what they want because most people, you know, people usually don't just want to be rich. You know, I want more, a lot of stuff now. What they want is a different job usually. What they want is enough money to pay their bills. What they want is enough time to be with their children or to be with their grandchildren or to pursue a hobby. They don't necessarily just want mega bucks. So what I do is I work with people to say, okay, how much do you need? Like I put people into, in my courses, I put people into groups and we monitor them. I've been doing that since 2015. I monitor them for a whole year. And what ends up happening, which is fascinating to me, is the groups that are committed, that meet 
week after week after week for a solid year, in those situations, pretty much 100% of them will experience some sort of major change in their life, the change that they wanted. Um, and you know whether it is their health or their finances or a new career or a new relationship or whatever. Um, but they are taught to be specific. So if you need $99.30, I tell you to intend for $99.30. The other you, big tip oh, is oh, oh, yes. it, the other big tip is it all works so much better in a group. You know, I it, the group size doesn't matter, and I've actually tested that in our intention experiments. One of the experiments I did where we were trying to make seeds grow faster. We were I was working with the University of Arizona, and I tried it six different times with six different size audiences. Yeah, you know. My first audience was in Sydney, Australia, audience of 700. And then we had smaller audiences in Rhinebeck, New York, and a bigger audience over the internet of thousands of people. We tried all these different sizes in different locations, and we found that size totally didn't matter. What mattered was understanding of technique and experience in intending. Um, for instance, a group of healing touch professionals were one of those audiences and they there's our seeds grew twice as high compared to controls with them but um and distance didn't matter either distance didn't matter either so, so we have tested it so size doesn't matter but technique does so it can be a very large group it can be a small group but something about a group and with a group a power of eight group Sometimes you get intention, but a lot of other times you send intention most of the time. So the other big piece of this, aside from a group kind of sense of oneness, is, um, is altruism. Mm -hmm. Altruism is a big, big factor in these power eight groups. Most of the time you're giving rather than receiving, mm -hmm. but the receivers also get healed even when people aren't focusing on them. And that's the, the real amazing thing. Yeah, I was watching um, some of the testimonials and Bill was one of the guys that was really fun to watch him who had like chronic, I don't perhaps chronic depression or and sort of had a very powerful feeling. Um, can you give me a specific example, let's say within the last year of, uh, of somebody where they were not specific and then you said, Here's how I want you to be specific. Yeah. I mean, I had one group where they were trying to do a group intention to win the lottery and it just wasn't working. And I said, well, is that how much you need? You need $13 million. And they said, no, <laughs> Joe needs $20,000 and something cents for a car. And Sally needs X number of, of you know, $15,000 for her kids schooling, et cetera. And I said, okay, so intend for that, but intend separately first for Sally, then for Joe or whatever it was. And, and they suddenly started receiving. And I've also seen people where they're stuck um, and nothing's happening. And I tell them finally, you know what? Get off of yourself. Start mm -hmm. intending for someone else and see what happens. And certainly that was 
the case with many, many people. Um, I've had two very notable cases. One was Andy Spiros, who was trying to get a new job. She was newly divorced um, and her group kept intending for her and nothing was happening. And she was very talented at marketing. Mm -hmm. She was talented at, you know, selling and coaching and nothing. So I finally just said, Andy, get off of yourself. Intend for somebody in the group who needs the intention more. Yeah. So she yeah. did. She was intending for, and, and what she did was she chose to intend for a young boy uh, who called Luke that I had introduced everybody to um, who had tried to commit suicide at 15 because he broke up with his first serious girlfriend, jumped off a 40-foot structure onto hard ground nearly died, everything was broken, his nerve damage, brain damage, everything. So I got all of my groups who were part of a course to send intention to Luke and Andy, I said, get off of yourself, focus on Luke. Now, Luke got out of the hospital in record time and he is a totally normal 18 year old boy now. Um, <clears throat> his parents sent me a photo of him now, he's fantastic. You know, doctors didn't even think he was gonna live when he first came in. Maybe that was us. Maybe it was good doctoring. But the interesting thing was <laughs> what happened really to Andy. Because Andy, the week after she did that, gets a call out of nowhere offering her her dream job. Mm. So that has happened over and over and over again with people doing intention for someone else. And we have done brainwave studies on Power of Eight groups. I worked with... Um, with Life University, which is the largest chiropractic university in the world, to try to find out what on earth is going on with these power of eight groups. Why are they so powerful? Why are people getting healed who have all kinds of chronic problems, whether it is you know their health or their finances or whatever, their relationships or whatever. And we found, we expected that the we'd put an EEG cap on one member of each of seven groups of student volunteers. Never, they'd never done power of eight groups. They'd never even meditated. So we do this and we find, we thought we were going to find brainwave signatures that were identical to meditation, those of meditation. And they bizarrely, they were nothing like meditation. They were completely consistent though with the brainwave signatures of Sufi masters during uh, chanting and Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer. The parts of the brain involved with making us feel separate, like the parietal lobes that sit in the back of the head here. They help us navigate through space. They tell us, this is me, this is not me. They were dialed way down, but so were the parts of the brain, the right frontal lobe involved with worry, doubt, negativity. Those were all really uh, decreased the brainwave brainwaves in those areas. So what these were, they were identical to those studies done by a guy called Dr. Andrew Newberg from University of Pennsylvania of Buddhist monks and Sufi masters. These were people in a state of ecstatic oneness. And that is also, besides altruism, the big secret sauce here is that you get to experience what life is really like. We aren't separate. That's what all of that study I found in the new science and the field I discovered was 
we aren't separate. We're all part of a giant quantum energy field. And we, but we don't feel that way. We don't experience life that way. We experience yep. yeah. life as our own little lonely self on this yeah. little lonely planet. And here we have a situation where in a matter of minutes, you can experience what life is really like, which is a state of blissful oneness. Love that. I'm all in on that idea right now of uh, that illusion of separation and what tools are there to, to, um, to, to help shed those, that, that illusion. Like that's illusion number one, that we're all separate. And I think as we get older as individuals, there's the word separate individuals. Um, it's, it's, I found in, in, into my forties, right. Like successing my way through those, that feeling of separation, uh, dating or, or all these things to fill that, that, uh, God-sized hole, if you want to call it, or yeah, I'd love the, I'm all, I'm all in on, I, on how can I get rid of that, that illusion of separation. And for me, it, it, includes judgment like i find like like judging like that doesn't that just adds to the to the to the separate i could go on and on about it um sure yeah did you ever read the course in miracles or do that oh i know all about it i will marianne williamson's a very good friend so i know all about it yeah she was i read her book uh the power uh or what is it the return to love uh number of years ago. And so I was like, I'm getting the book, but I've been for two years. I have been studying. It's been very powerful. And uh, absolutely. It's good. Um, I love the, I know we're on a time limit, but I would again, be remiss if I didn't emphasize the, so in recovery, 12 steps, all that, there's this idea of service, right? Like the way to freedom from addictions is service. Mm-hmm. That's one of the key steps, right? How can I be of service? How can I be of service? And it's that altruistic piece that you're talking about in your power of eights, um, which I love that concept of, and I like the way you said it, get over yourself, right? If like, if I'm trying to fulfill some egoic need, that's like, I want success for success sake. Well, perhaps the universe is going to give you pushback versus if you're like, Hey, how can I help energetically this Luke, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it, what people learn that in a power of eight group, because as I say, um, if you're meeting every week, you only have time to do about three people. Yeah. Let's say if you're meeting for an hour and you've got to do about 10 minutes each. So most of the time you're actually intending for someone else, but you are actually getting healed too. And that's the extraordinary thing about them. They're virtuous circles. They, you heal and they heal. And when I started studying, because again, I started seeing this, you know, what happened was this big, lovely accident back in 2008, where suddenly these small groups, people were getting healed. And as I say, I'm not a healer by background, a hard-nosed reporter. So I'm, I'm, needing to test this and continuing to test it. And what I discovered over and over again was, you know, when people were sending intention to each other, even it didn't matter whether they were sender or receiver, they were still getting healed. As you mentioned, 
the guy called Wes, who was had chronic depression, participated in one 10 minute uh, power of eight group he'd volunteered for. He wanted to be the subject, but there was a woman in the group with stage four cancer. And so he, he said, well, she should be the subject. I'll just be a sender. And the experience was so powerful um, for him. And Wes was somebody who had given up on life. He'd had a terrible life. He'd been drafted during the last years of the Vietnam War. Um, life had just gone down in a terrible spiral for him to the point where when I met him at 65, he'd kind of given up and it was kind of what's the use type of attitude. Tra tragic and relationships too, right? Like his, his woman of his love of his life died with fast growing cancer. Yeah. And one intention for that woman with stage four cancer and he wakes up the next day, he has this amazing vision of meeting his 19 year old self back on campus when he still had a lot of dreams. He wanted to be a doctor. He was a smart guy. Um, and somehow that in that vision, his 19 year old self communicated to him, don't worry, there's still time. Mm -hmm. And he literally said to me, I get to start life over all over again at 65. And he was a changed person, started doing heavy exercise, getting in shape, started studying new things, started writing, really participating in his church, really friendly with everybody, completely new individual. And I've seen that over and over again um, with this altruism. When you look at the science of altruism, you realize it's, it is like a, 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 it's like a bulletproof vest. Mm -hmm. You know, people who do things for other people, no matter how small, live longer, happier, healthier lives. So there's a ton of research demonstrating how powerful getting off of yourself really is. And I've certainly seen that with Power of Eight groups. I love I love the way you say that. Did you tell your kids that all the time? Get off of yourself. Get off of yourself. Yeah, do something for someone else. It's so good. You know what I love about that too? I, it's so, I think it's so profound how like a smile it can be as simple as a smile to somebody walking down the street like there are it's it, i can get it in my head that i need to do this massive service thing when it's in reality it can be smile a sense of goodwill letting somebody jump in front of you in traffic whatever right would you concur on that or well i think that um i think that any kind of act, whether it is just taking out your neighbor's garbage, for mm. instance. I mean, that's what the science shows is volunteers live longer, healthier, happier lives. People who are ill with something, um, if they help someone else with the same illness, they themselves are more likely to get better. There's all that kind of, there's so much science around altruism. Yeah. It's not just, hey, this, this would be a nice thing to do. This is a this is a serious, healthy thing to do for the giver. Yes. But, you know, what I always tell people, too, is you've got to do this Power of Eight group with a pure heart, too. Yeah. You want to really get into wanting to get that other person better. And mm -hmm. one of the great things about a Power of Eight group, it's so great for now because we've all been so isolated. You don't have to meet in person. You can meet on Zoom, mm -hmm. just like we're doing now. 
most of my groups in all of my courses, they meet together. I usually put people in the same time zones, but they meet on Zoom. Many of them are like family to each other, but they've never actually physically met. Mm. And it's, it's that kind of working over and over again together, having, knowing you've got this little intention family is such a beautiful way to get over all of the isolation and fear that we're all experiencing now with COVID. Yeah. Um, I know you've got a time crunch and I could go on and on and I can keep asking questions, but I, I want to be respectful for you and your time. And, and I want to Lynn, Lynn McTaggart.com L Y N N E M C T A G G A R T dot com. Uh, there's links for your books. The four books are there. Um, you people can sign up for a webinar that looks super cool. Is that something where, is that all recorded or do they get a taste of you? No, I, all of my courses, Misha are live. So I've got a course coming up called intention essentials, which is, and what we do is we meet together, um, for two hours at a time, five sessions in, uh, in total. So it's 10 hours, but it's live and interactive. So I've got people doing intention together on putting them into groups, et cetera, online. So it's, it's very cool. And if you can't make one of the sessions or, or a number of them, it's always recorded. So that's coming up starting October 2nd. But no, all of my courses are live. Fantastic. And, and there looks like some really cool ones on there. Um, there's also yeah, and um, with intention essentials, you just have to follow the link on the top of lynnmctaggart.com. Okay. You'll find out more. Perfect. I, I also, there is um, your uh, retreats, which I'm, when I'm looking over here, I'm looking at your website. So sure. I was just prowling through your retreats and it looks like you have some really cool stuff going on with retreats. So we've got into the light, which is in Costa Rica. That's, did we miss that one? No, that's, uh, that's coming up December. And then yes, the um, I've got a, uh, it's over New Year's because yeah. we decided people were just so sad about COVID and having difficulty that what we tend to run in our entreat- retreats is I work with my husband who authored a book called The Untrue Story of You, which is all about how we are controlled by our past and our past isn't that time is an energy as he puts it and not a dimension it's an energy and it lives through you and it actually creates you so we do a course called you know healing yourself from your past with with the power of eight and we use intention to go back in time not to change what did happen but to change your perception of what happened and give you back your power. And that's been very, very healing. So we've got one in Costa Rica, which is going to be so exciting because we're going to have a new Year's celebration and celebrate going, coming into the light after the, all of this darkness of COVID. That's so a, that's, that's also a, on my website too. Yeah. Fantastic. And yes, it's under the events section. Now, We've got one healing the past with the power of eight, which is what you're talking about in Italy. I'm looking at this going, oh my gosh, these, this is an amazing, an amazing experience in an amazing place. So 2022, if somebody wants to 
stretch it out to then we can go to absolutely Italy. we're doing something we're going to be up in Damanhur, which is that amazing underground batch of tunnels and cathedrals in northern italy so we'll be doing that too we just run one or two retreats a year but they're really really wonderful and we have a coterie of other classes i also just ran a big intention experiment to heal afghanistan and we had both muslims and uh, Americans on it together, <laughs> essentially healing each other. So that was, we had many thousands on that. That was just last Saturday for the 20th anniversary. I thought maybe we should have a different kind of image for 9-11. That's beautiful. So I know um, the official scientific results are coming, but in the moment of the experience, I mean, I'm just getting, I just got the chills even thinking about it. was it, was it, it must have been profound or maybe give me five words on the experience. Sure. Well, Misha, what I found with intention experiments, I've been lately bringing polarized communities together. Like we did a big one with Arabs and Israelis together, people mm -hmm. from all over the Gulf uh, states of Arab countries and an audience of Israeli Jews, had them all come together with special equipment that could put a camera in all in nine different locations. And they started sending love to each other at the end. So what I've been doing a lot of with intention experiments is finding that, again, this is all about altruism. Yeah. When you come yeah. together in a compassionate act, like sending intention to heal Afghanistan, something in your heart opens up. I survey people, and I've done so since 2008 with my intention experiments, and I find that when people are doing an intention for peace for somewhere in the world, they themselves experience peace in their lives. You know, they get over, they make up with estranged relatives. They get along better with their not so nice bosses. You know, they come together with their kids who haven't been speaking to them. And, you know, they get healed in some way. They find more peace. They're hugging strangers. So I will be surveying the people who were the participants of last Saturday. But if they're anything like every single other peace experiment I run, <laughs> that's what happens. I, I can't tell you how many chills I just got while you were telling me that. That's amazing. Um, so I did this uh, summit. I put together 20 speakers. It was called the Tools for a Good Life Summit. Um, and I did it in August. It just went down in August and I brought in all these 20 modalities and one of them so you know healers so i went uh body mind soul so uh body mind spirit so i i started with mind so i had you know anthony trucks was on there talking about uh, identity and and such and then uh you know i had eft i had uh emdr and then i had healers on there meditation you know the the full gamut and so what happened was I was like, I really want somebody for intention. So back in June or whenever I was inviting people, you were one of the targets. I was like, I was, so I'm looking intention and I came across Lynn McTaggart and I'm like, so your publicist or schedule, I, I believe is who I reached out to. And she said, ah, oh, you're super busy. Um, but you would gladly or be on the podcast. So thank you so much. And as I was doing my research and, you know, prepping, I, 
I was like, oh my gosh, you are, excuse my language, badass. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, I am so blessed. And I feel it now to have you on the podcast. And I, I'm just saying this because, you know, I've been in, in recovery for, for decades myself and, and lots of personal growth, lots of personal growth. And, you know, I've had these bitch slap moments in my life where it's like, all right, you got to start meditating. You know, that was 10 years ago. Like you need to take meditating really seriously. Okay. And, you know, just all this stuff and the service aspect and more ways to be of service. Service has been so powerful in my life. And, but I, I just say this in that I've got deep roots in some of the things you're talking about. And I've just, it's such a gift to have you on here. And I want to encourage, I'm saying all this because I want to encourage all my listeners. I'm looking at your website, like go to lynnmctaggart.com look at all the good stuff, jump on some of your courses, get one of her books, heck go to Italy, right? Like, like what an opportunity, um, to heal. And I just strongly believe in intention and, and, uh, yeah, that, I just wanted to say that. So I, 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 I probably should have started with all that, but I'm going to end with all that and just say, you're a very powerful woman. Thank you so much. And, um, yeah, anybody listening, go check out lynnmctaggart.com, dive into your, her content, your content, and take advantage because they're, uh, you can feel at one with the world. And who doesn't want that, right? Thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to be with you, Misha. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to hit stop and then uh, we'll say goodbye offline. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with me today. As someone who is committed to growth and service to this world, I so appreciate your willingness to come with me, go within, and serve our world through change. If you found value in this podcast and you know someone who can use this message, share this episode with them. Share it so our mission can be achieved one episode at a time. And of course, subscribe so you can hear more. And lastly, for more resources on what has helped me on my journey and can help you on yours, go to belove.media forward slash resources. That's B-E-L-O-V-E dot media forward slash resources. Thank you again for listening.